Hello, everyone, and welcome to Documentation Not Included, a tech industry podcast presented by DNI Stream, the live knowledge repository for software professionals. Yay! It's Thursday at 7 p.m. British time. We're live on twitch.tv slash DNI Stream. I am Josie Howard. And as always, I am joined by my joke friendly loving co host, Chris Seabach. Yes, well, um, just before the stream, we were, were everyone was exchanging dad jokes, so I've asked for a public apology, but nobody knows what the joke jokes were, so not much point, is there? Anyway, so yes, hello Josie and hello everybody in Twitch chat. Please do get involved, this is a live show and we will read out anything that is relevant. We've also got a new little cool, uh, cool feature to show on the stream today, which uh, we will be using if anyone has anything relevant to say. Um, but before we get going, let us introduce our guest today, Phil. Phil has been with us before. Um, I think actually Phil was the last, possibly the last guest we had on as well. Because when I loaded yes. up the scene, it was still his name. So I'm assuming <laughs> it's been a few weeks, but we've had a very, very busy few weeks. So we haven't had it. But anyway, Phil, for those who didn't catch you last time, please do introduce yourself and uh, tell everybody what you do. Yes. Yep. Hello, I'm Phil Nash. Um, I'm, my, I'm a regular guest on, on this show, apparently. <laughs> uh, so uh, last time I was talking about TDD. But we're going to talk about something a bit different today. Uh, as I mentioned at the time, I had my fingers in lots of different pies, so um, I'll, uh, I'll share myself around a little bit. I'm um, a developer advocate at JetBrains, mostly for the C++ tools, but I can talk about other tools as well. Um, worked with lots of different languages and uh, techniques over the years. So um, yeah, that, that's enough of me for now. Well, you'll get plenty of plenty of chance yeah. later on to pimp yourself in any personal projects if you can uh, remember any of them by then. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we, as always, before we get started, we like to have an icebreaker question. It's just a random question; has absolutely nothing to do with the development world or even the IT world. And the intent is just to have a little bit of fun, shake off the cobwebs that are currently sitting in the brain and of course make Chris think and then pass on the question because he always says so. So here's your question for this week. In one sitting, what is the most amount of pancakes you have ever eaten? I don't need to pass that one on, but I will because it's guest honor. That's why I do it. It's because I'm being polite. It's not because I can't think of things. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh, I don't think I have a, a terribly interesting answer to that one. <laughs> Probably about five or six. Oh, well, it depends on the type of pancakes. That's the it thing. Does. It does. Yeah. I mean, it if, really does. I, when I was young, I only knew about English pancakes, you know, the thin, crispy pancakes that we, we kind of cook on Pancake Day, uh, just using yeah. up all your fridge stuff, you know, it's kind of the end of, is it the end of Lent that we do that? I think that? it's Shrove Tuesday. Yeah, it's the end of Lent, so it's the end of, or end the beginning. Start, yeah. One of the I, two. I can't remember. You know, we've just had it actually in the UK, haven't we? Um, of those, the little thin pancakes, I would say probably 25, 25 of those little ones. Um, when it comes to American, you know, the thicker pancakes you can get from uh, like IHOP and things oh, like that. There's International other, House of Pancakes, which, which is so not international at all. No, but it's brilliant. I, I mean, uh, my eyes were opened there. Probably about three, probably about three or four, maybe, if I'm pushing it. Really? Yeah. Well, I have to ask though, what type of syrup? Well, I, I, t I tend to... If you're doing IHOP... Well, it's usually maple syrup and it's usually some kind of like um, uh, strawberries and cream and stuff, but 
it really does depend. I, I, I said went to Amsterdam recently and discovered a whole new world of savory pancakes. Oh, oh yeah, their That's, Mexican pancakes that I had in Amsterdam were incredible. It's all I eat now is savory pancakes. They're the best. So so Dutch good. house in London is a a, a Dutch pancake. Yes, I've been there. Ooh. It's very good. So good. Uh, for me, I'm roughly about with Chris. It's roughly about four, maybe, is the most I could shovel in. Um, but when I was in America, my syrup of choice usually is like the mapley mapley stuff, like Aunt Jemima's maple syrup or something so like that. So calorific and bad for you and full of awful, awful things that you shouldn't be putting in your body. But hey. Who cares? Yeah, it's you only syrup. live once. But um, yeah, YOLO on food. Wow. No, for me, I when I go to like IHOP where they have this sort of really horribly artificially flavored stuff, I tend to be drawn to the strawberry syrup. So, mm. but you know, if you're if you're going to do that, it's it's one of those things that usually it's not just eaten alone. You usually have other things with it if you go to IHOP or to Denny's. I thought you meant there was a group environment House. then. You know, you had you ate pancakes with other people. You have to eat them with other people or in oh, different predicaments. Absolutely. Oh, it, <laughs> pancake eating is obviously a group <laughs> content thing. So anyway, <laughs> let's let's move on from the, the the culinary delights of pancakes and into the world of dependency hell. So <laughs> we're going to be talking today about code, uh, about projects and the dependencies that we have to manage um, with them. Now, years and years and years ago, um, we had we refer in in the Windows world because is, which is where my background is. Um, there was a common term thrown around in the .NET world, especially called DLL hell. And I'm sure, I mean, it probably existed in C++ as well, to be fair, Phil. I know oh, that's yes. your, your background. It started there. Um, then uh, Microsoft decided to introduce something called the GAC, which is the Global Assembly Cache, um, which made it marginally better for about 10 minutes until everybody started abusing it, and then it, it became even worse. Um, so you didn't actually have files anymore. It was more this kind of abstract pointer to a file somewhere in the operating system that you didn't quite know where it was, and sometimes it disappeared and sometimes it didn't. And then you had to spread that around. Anyway, so we got into a, a bit of a... This is why we refer to it as hell. So that, I suppose I suppose I'm, in the, I'm right in the middle now of doing... A, a, I'm not going to say legacy because it's still in, in use and legacy is such a loose term, but I'm doing a, a code migration from a very old repository that's got a lot of history, but has a very specific way of handling dependencies. Um, and I suppose, I'm going, to, I'm going to start by asking Phil a question actually. What's the, what's the most common scenario you see these days um, with dependency management? So how do you see in a common like in a new application how do you see dependency be, being managed these days well most languages or ecosystems do have a uh, a dependency manager or in some cases several dependency managers and sometimes yep. you have to manage the dependency managers uh, yep. but not all languages do actually have so so it does depend and the degree to which they help will also vary for example, I've been doing a lot of Python recently, which has you know, quite an established dependency manager with, with uh, pip, and I know there are some others as well. Um, and what I've been finding is it starts off really good, but you start to hit problems quite soon that you didn't think even existed. Um, and 
Yes, some of us as well. There's always there's always something that you didn't think of when you designed the dependency manager that then comes back to become the problem with that dependency manager. Yeah, and I think as soon as you said that, not not thinking about something like I that cast my mind back to the last version or maybe about three or four versions of um, npm. Have you ever used npm? Node package yes. manager. So npm used to have this kind of the dependencies of the dependencies used to they got created in a tree structure. So you could have a humongous node modules um, directory, but these days they flattened it down and everything is just in the, the base directory and then somehow it referenced it. I haven't actually looked into it in a lot of detail how them did work, but now it's just a flat directory structure and it's a lot easier to manage and it's a lot easier, more e easier to restore as well. But then we still have problems with versions of them. And all of this kind of fits in with dependency management because you can't have dependency management without talking about version versions and versioning, versioning strategies. You can't really talk about it without then saying, well, how does that affect the rest of everything? You know, how does it affect the build chain? How does it affect the, um, the repository size? Do we push dependencies to our repository? And most people would say, no, don't do that. But then there's some use cases where you have to do that, or it's more sensible to do that. Um, you got, it's it gets well out of hand i tell you it can get pretty crazy yeah you, you should see the the c plus plus world uh, well that's the thing is i don't know anything about how c plus plus would manage its dependencies is is there a package manager or one accepted package manager for it no okay. uh, there seems uh, to be like this hopeless expression now on his face <laughs> sort of just oh boy here we go is it still hell Yes, just just a, a different hell. <laughs> so uh, right. I think there are there are like several different rings of, of hell uh, when it comes to dependency management in C plus plus. These days there are about I'd say maybe four or five reasonably established package managers. None of them are really considered the de facto one. Uh, perhaps if you're pure in the Microsoft world, uh, you might say VS Package is the de facto package manager. Uh, that that bold counts. That's pretty good. I've not actually used it. Um, directly myself, although my own libraries are packaged there, which is quite nice. Right. Um, and there's, there's another fully open source one. Actually, VS packages is fully open source, but there's another one that's um, like a more of a community grassroots effort um, called uh, Conan, which has now oh. been bought. Well, a few years ago, now bought by uh, JFrog, so they're part of the JFrog. Sorry, what was that? Corda. Conan. Conan, right? Okay. Yeah, like uh, Conan the Barbarian. I thought Corda's a language. It's or it's a yeah. So anyway, no, no, no. So uh, and that, that's, that's been going quite a while now. That's got a lot of momentum behind it. But um, there, there, there's a few others as well, but none of them have really uh, cornered the market. And they, they're all still battling with some of the complexities of, of C++, which have uh, additional um, obstacles to, to work with. So, um, and there are things in the language which aren't helping, that we're trying to fix, but we're not quite there yet. Right. Um, ABI. Uh, stability is probably the number one issue, I would say, which many languages don't have to deal with at all. But what's, I was just about to say, can you define yeah. ABI? Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, I was going to say the same thing. So, <laughs> so um, ABI is uh, the application binary interface. Okay. So when you compile native code uh, down to a, a binary, then you've got to pay attention to the layout of uh, types and even uh, functions and, and methods in memory. Um, right. So that if you if you're joining two dynamic libraries in particular together, um, they're going to make assumptions about the layout of the thing they're calling into. 
because that's, that's how language native languages work. So if that ABI standard changes between one version and the next, or between one compiler and the next, as it does, then interoperating those things is uh, at best impossible. Right. <laughs> and at worst, it might appear to work until it doesn't. That's, I mean, that that's, I mean, sounds like something I wouldn't even ever need to consider um, in, in the .NET world, at least. I mean, no, no, no. The .NET world, um, it, it's all handled by metadata and, and the managed runtime. Um, that's one of the the main founding principles of the, the managed runtime in, in .NET and similar in, in Java. So when you talk about layout, then, sorry for digging a bit deeper in this. It's just, no, it's fine. quite interesting to me. What, what, when you talk about layout... To a layman, what what does that mean? I mean, to me, when I interface with a an API of some or or a whether it's a, a, a Windows API or a or an assembly, it has it has a signature. There's something that I can tag onto and then start. You know, I get some kind of strongly typed reference. Is that what we're talking about with a layout? It's part of it. There's actually several aspects to it. Okay. Um, and yeah, depending on which part you're looking at them there may be different approaches to to solving the problem uh for example just in terms of uh layout in memory of a type that you define say you declare a class and it's got several uh member variables in their fields um you might make assumptions about the size of those those fields um in some cases the size of those fields is not uh, defined as in it's implementation defined so the size of an integer may vary from one implementation to another okay you also have um, different amount, amounts of packing. So, you know, a, a single 8-bit uh, uh, character, for example, um, may have, uh, you know, three characters of padding after it to make sure that memory accesses are aligned. Uh, and, you know, there's more complex uh, layers on top of that as well. Okay. So how things are actually laid out in memory is not something you can guess at just by looking at the type. It's all down to what the implementation of the compiler decides is optimal. And so that varies between one implementation and another. Just that alone means that when you're referring to a type um, by value in another library, then it's just going to be mismatched. Uh, so, if you're doing it by a level of indirection, you can get away with it. But This is fascinating because, I mean, it's something I'd, I've never even thought about. I just take for granted that my dependency looks like this and I can work with it. I just import it and I work with it, basically. Mm -hmm. I have problems managing the dependency, but not actually interfacing with the dependency. Yeah. Uh, I, perhaps the more interesting part, though, is um, the, the libraries. So the standard libraries in C++, they, um, the implementations of them are not specified in the standard. Only the, the interfaces and any like complexity guarantees and, uh, and that sort of thing which means different implementations are free to implement them in different ways. Right. The trouble is, now you get things that are not specified in the standard that actually part of the ABI of, of that type. Like a, even just like a, an extra private member variable means that this type is no longer compatible with the previous version mm. of the same type. So if you're interoperating between two versions of that standard library, it's not going to work, even though they appear to be the same on the surface because they're following the same standard. So, uh, and that means that we um, uh, we, we try to optimize um, not implementations but uh, specifications in the standard, so we can say, "Oh, we can do this more optimally if we do it this way." Ah, but we can't because that's going to change the layout of this type in memory, and that's going to break EBI compatibility. So it actually, it's actually holding us back from making optimizations in the language, uh, just because we there's this. Um, 
so a desire not to break compatibility. Does a particular dependency or a particular compilation, as in a binary, a, a distribution of a dependency rather, that's probably the word I was looking for, um, that has been versioned, and uh, I know versions are arbitrary really, but a, a particular checksum, let's say, a, a particular compile of, of a, a dependency, does that have the same layout depending on, uh, does that have the same layout based on what the compiler generates as in the, the people who are consuming that dependency do they always see the same thing or can they consume it with a different implementation as well do, am i making any sense I'm, I'm just trying to get my head around how, <laughs> how that works i think so this, this stuff is complicated yeah in general the only way you can guarantee that if you're linking dynamically linking against or, or even uh, statically linking against something which has been produced by a different compiler or a different instance the only way you can guarantee that's going to be compatible if it's compiled with the same compiler with all of the same uh, build flags um, and uh, the same libraries and just the same everything basically right. uh, if anything differs then that may or may not you don't know <laughs> introduce an incompatibility and so, again sometimes those incompatibilities won't be immediately ob obvious it will so appear to work and then this is leading me into the, the trust world or the signing world. Does that have anything to do with this? Um, it can do, yes, uh, in that uh, hackers may uh, use this, um, that their knowledge of how things are laid out to um, effectively play tricks with what, what you think you're doing right. as, a, as a user of a library. Um, I'm a little bit out of my depth in actually thinking of an example. That's fine. I mean, I've I, seen I've seen that done. I'm well out of my depth with everything you've yeah. said for the last ten minutes, so that's <laughs> that's great. But no, honestly, that's really that's fascinating because I didn't realise that that dependencies in because I've never touched C plus plus other than a very quick hello world, you know, just to kind of see how it sits together or or C. Um, so I don't really I don't really know how it works, but that's really interesting and another reason for me never to touch C C or C or C plus <laughs> plus. Because that sounds like my worst nightmare, <laughs> to be honest. Now, to be fair, we could um, just draw a hard line and say, okay, uh, we're, we're never going to break ABI compatibility. Or if we do, but there's always going to be a way that we can, you know, whether it's adding extra metadata like, like .NET does, or have some sort of managed runs. There are things we can do to mitigate this. Mm -hmm. But all of those things would reduce our ability to get the maximum performance mm. out of it. And C++ is the language that, you don't always necessarily have to use it just for performance, but that's one of its sort of uh, raison d'etre. So if you, if you can't be the most performant language, then it's it's not really living up to its... You might as well ending. use it for a right. higher generation yeah. language. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. Well, I'm going to totally jump in right here because I want to pull us back yes. just a little bit because we've actually had a comment come in and I think it's worth us using our new tool. Click. That one of our guests has actually written. So yes, um, it's directly below me. Jamie, Jamie has just written. Uh, an interesting thing to note about dependencies is that Google get their engineers to check specific versions of dependencies into source control. Now that was probably refers back to. I know we're kind of completely we, we losing the so plot zoomed when zagged. We At did this point, We went down chutes and ladders. But it's interesting because um, I think you mentioned just before. Uh, when, when we said we were looking for a guest in, in our Discord earlier on, you mentioned that Google would disagree with my statements. Um, and well, this... 
repeat for everybody who here what your statement was. Well, I, I because... said quite a few things, so I'm not going to start <laughs> going into the terrain there. But basically, in in this particular instance where we're talking about, um, we were talking about checking assemblies and binaries into source control and i did say with a caveat earlier on generally in the dotnet world at least we don't do that we don't check binaries into um into source control because one it takes up a lot of room two mm. it makes builds um take a lot generally take a lot longer uh, and three the source control history becomes bloated especially if there's a new version of a binary that gets compiled and pushed because it's a large file it's a binary file it's not doesn't have the optimizations that a text comparison would have um but in the instance where we're pushing binaries to source control there are some good use cases for that um and i'd like to i mean I, I'm jamie's commenting further but i'd like to explore that a little bit further i suppose what what do you phil or even josie what do you see as a good reason to push a, a binary to source co source control, a dependency binary specifically? I will come right out and say I can. Poop. All right. No idea. Like no. <laughs> so like, Phil? No, okay. not happening. <laughs> because the thing is, when I think of binaries, I literally think of the size, and that to me just it doesn't. It no compute. So I don't have an interesting story there. Ooh. Before I get to that, uh, I also wanted to point out that when you made that comment on the, the Discord, uh, I think I may have slightly misinterpreted you. I didn't realize at the time you were talking about checking binaries in. Okay. Um, we were talking about having dependencies in uh, the, the same repo. So I, I said, thought you were thinking about like mono repo. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> Chris was join our Discord folks. The the yeah. chatter that happens there is surreal. We're gonna we're gonna get on to I suppose how to manage your dependencies within a project separately. So I've got some very specific um, things to talk about about that. But in this instance let's let's stick to pushing binaries to source control and whether or not uh, yeah. whether or not there's a there's a use case for that because most developers, most purist .NET developers at least, and even um I would say a lot of web developers working with not necessarily binaries but transpiled code would say never ever push your builds to to source control. Right. So so literally does not compute. I have a story which is about C again, but there is some .NET in there just for you. Okay. Woo. So a few years ago, I was working at a bank. Uh, I was actually there for quite a long time, and um, I worked on a team where. Most of the team, they were, they were quants at a bank. So they they were programmers, but they, that wasn't really their, their main thing. So they just wanted like the simplest possible experience. They just wanted to check things out of source control and work, and that's it. And so for years, the, their subversion uh, source control system had all of their binary dependencies, whether that's libs or in some cases even executables, um, as well as lots of source code as well, uh, just all checked in to, to a single um repository there so the, the advantage was literally they could just check it out might take a while the first time um but then they could just build and, and run and, and they were fine because c definitely back then didn't have any sort of package manager mm -hmm. but there might have been one that was just getting off the ground uh, so that was fine until we decided to move to git and as the the guy on the team that knew about this stuff i was given the task of making sure that we could move everything over to Git. And Git, of course, doesn't like large binary files being checked in. So how are we going to deal with this? What we really need is a, is a dependency manager. Uh, and at this point, 
there was this one that was going off the ground that wasn't quite up to the job yet. Or you could use uh, NuGet. Uh, apparently you, you could use it for C++, not really what it's optimized for, but people have got it to work. I, I tried it, I couldn't get it to work. Okay. So I did what any program would do. You I'm wrote it. Wrote your own. How hard can it be to write a package? <laughs> oh, famous last words. I was about to say, that is the death knell of a developer. Well, here's the twist. It took me five seconds and it's perfect and it's in production already. Everyone's using it. Two days. It took you two days? Two days in F-sharp. Okay. Huh. By, by choosing to use F-sharp, I'm pretty sure that was a large part of, of why I got it up and running pretty much flawlessly in two days. Let, let's say free, actually getting it into production as well. Um, and then like six months later, I had to go back and do a little feature uh, request. That was the only time I really had to touch it. It just, it just worked. And it worked exactly the same way. As far as the end user experience, that the rest of the people on the team, they could check stuff out, they start a build, and there's even like a little hook in NMS build to uh, to trigger it and go away and check things against our server and download them in the background. And you'd, you'd just be sitting there waiting for the build. It might take a couple of hours the first time, especially if you were across the Atlantic, mm -hmm. as some of the team were. Um, but then, then it was fine. Now, I should point out i didn't have to deal with most of the things that make this problem particularly complex number one thing i didn't have to deal with is transitive dependencies which i think you mentioned earlier we only had like a single level of dependencies um just like a package name and version that's all we had um so that was that was nice and easy and only a single level of um, caching versus the the ultimate truth repository on a server somewhere yep so there, there are lots of simplifications uh, so I didn't write quite a fully-fledged package manager, but I was quite proud of that. That's, that's I'd say it's admirable. I mean, how hard can package management be when you think exactly, about it? Yeah. You're copying and, and pasting files around and restoring them, and, you know, that's it really. But I'm yeah. sure there's a lot more to it than that when you dig into it. Oh, I yeah. mean, the NuGet ex executable isn't very big. You know, it, it doesn't do that much. It's only got a few commands on it really, but it allows you to push and pull from remote repositories and local repositories and then it reads in config files and do, does all kinds of other things. The only reason that we haven't got, we, we don't roll our own, and it's the same excuse for almost any piece of software, is that somebody else has already done it for us a lot of the time, if it exists, of course. So something, there's a few things, interesting things you mentioned there. Um, when you said transitive, I presume you meant uh, you, what I refer to as a recursive kind of... The dependencies of dependencies. Yeah. And the dependencies of the dependencies of the dependencies. Yeah. So, or, yeah, or I potentially. Yeah. <laughs> right, right down the hole. Yeah. So dependencies of the way down. I, I suppose they're, not they're not recursive, actually, I suppose. So they're, you know, they're, yeah, dependencies, sub-dependencies or something, child dependencies of, of dependencies. They, they are meta-recursive. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they could be. That's the thing. If you do something slightly wrong. Um, yeah. Um, so this, um, <laughs> this SVN repository you were, you were working with, hmm. um, your problem sounded very similar to a problem I'm dealing with at the moment. So I'm in the process of my, and I mentioned this, I think, last week, um, of, of migrating a very old, um, humongous 
I mean, it's 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 the biggest repository I've seen in my life, and I've seen some pretty big ones in terms of size. The actual code base isn't much, but there's a lot of uh, history there, and there's a lot of um, there's a lot of binaries that shouldn't really be there. But there's also the history, not just the physical history, as in the commit history, or the revision history, the history of the company that it belongs to. There is lots of dependencies that before NuGet existed that they've just basically copied and pasted off CodePlex and put them into their repository and created an external for them. There's a lot of dependencies where they've done that or they've got a commercial version of some source code, modified it somewhat, and it's not open source any longer. They have to have that in their dependency. In dependency. But they've also got situations where they have um, products, a product folder or a trunk of some description, and then they have lots of dependencies or externals that have their own externals that are the same externals as the ones that are in the project for the externals and they've only done that so they can make it eat they're basically replicating a, 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 a single source of truth for every single potential um, external so they've done it right it's just that the history's there and they, they're not aware of uh, the, a better way to do it i suppose or the more modern way to do it so we've got this humongous repository where um, there's not much choice other than if we're migrating from SVN, for example, into Git, of use it to make it easy of using something like Git submodules, and then we run into problems with Git submodules because they're very different from SVN externals. I, I have a very strong sort of hate love relationship with submodules and Git, but yeah. Yeah, um, I, I like them in theory, but in practice, not so much. Exactly. Yeah, which is why I'm much more heavier on the hate part right now <laughs> so, than I am on the love. <laughs> in this particular example, you can imagine how hard a sell it is to, considering that there's been an assumption with this project on the sign-off, there is, we are going to go with Git. I've explained submodules and why they kind of are a problem, and I've explained that we need to explore different ways to do dependency management, and I've provided lots of evidence and examples of how to kind of move into a package manager world because they've got parts of it that are package managed. So we're in a, now in a situation where I have to put an entire system together for a very old, um, humongous project that has more dependency code than it does actual code, if you know what I mean. There's, there's tons of dependency code. Um, so the actual end result, so an end result repository would be very small the dependencies would be very, the list of dependencies would be very long, but they'd all restore from either private servers um, or from public open source servers. And there's very few public. So we're in a situation where trying to move over to that is difficult because I have to do a lot of work to put an example together of how their developers can switch from using SVN externals, which where they can, they can literally go into the repository now pull it all down, modify everything and anything and do a commit and it will push to all the externals and it will push to the, the, the core repository without a problem, without having to create additional commits. Moving into either a sub-module world where they have, if they make a modification, they modify the, the core repository and then if they make, say, six external modifications or get sub-module modifications, they have to push each one individually and commit to each one individually and then manage the dependencies in all of the other references um, or the other projects that use those references if they want to update them or sell them the package management thing. Not physically sell them, you know, like sell, <laughs> convince them that they, they that package management is the right way to go, which is Isn't a lot of work. Isn't there a script for that? 
like... Well, that's what the thing is. I have spent the last three or four weeks writing scripts to do all of this, to automate this. Right. Um, I've, I've ended up writing a JSON file, and the JSON file is... It's like trying to write um, procedurally generated code for anything, whether it's a computer game or, or anything else. Oh. You know, Procedurally generated code sounds brilliant. Oh, I've got a procedurally generated world, that's, but the amount of rules that you have to write to make it work is yeah. stupendous. Um, and it's not just the code migration. There's also user migrations, which have the same problems because the users don't exist in one system and all the other stuff. But that's the fun of it. I actually enjoy doing this kind of thing. But you can imagine how hard it is to get to a point where you can click a button and it's just done, especially when it's a huge repository where any import and all of the externals do a scan of the entire repository history. So say there's 20 externals plus a project. You've got the project scanning for four hours. Then each external has to scan the almost the entire history graph for another four hours. I mean, it, it gets res restricted a little bit, but it's generally just as long to do all of that. So, yeah, I'm having fun at the moment. Um, <laughs> it's, That's what he sounded. I, I enjoy it. I'm enjoying it, but it's just a hard sell to the client. You know, it's difficult to prove to them before actually showing them and they want to see it before they actually make decisions which I need decisions before I can show them it <laughs> so I'm in, a, I'm in a bit of a catch-22 well that is the world we live in go ahead Phil because I think you, you need to find one thing that works better in the, the new world and find a way to show them that because otherwise the best case is going to be it's no worse than you were doing before and it's probably going to be slightly harder in, in some case it's cases, the change but... It's the change yeah. that's the problem. But if you can say, if you can say, but this thing is better, then that gives you a, a starting point to say, here's the reason for doing it, that, even I if think, they don't understand the actual reasons. I think the problem is is that the remit um, for for the project is generally right. We need to be able to run our builds. We need to have continuous integration or continuous delivery of some description. We uh, that's the end result, and this is like probably a year in the future because it's such a big a big project um and to be able to enable that in any sensible way we have to migrate from monolithic repository to smaller repositories with dependencies managed because yeah. otherwise the build pulling the build and it's just going to take hours and hours and hours to get anywhere um so that's that's the end result and the client almost keeps forgetting that is what yeah. they wanted to do because they are starting to mm -hmm. see problems with their development workflow, which I see as well. And I've tried to explain, but I'm not them, you know, and I'm not their business as well. So it's just difficult, but it's a challenge that I'm, I'm enjoying. And, I and I know there are lots of different ways to do it, but they don't have all the knowledge and the experience to make the decisions that I need to be made. If you know where I'm coming from. That I, I just want to point out because it's worth adding a little bit of extra humor here. Just Copper Beardy has suggested, Chris, in this case, that maybe if you give them cake, it'll clinch the idea. And I, I, I you know, as much as I agree, <laughs> I don't think it's quite that simple. But he loves yes. cake. He's always talking about cake. Whenever he comes on the, the dev, dev stream, that's his thing. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's a cake thing. So here's, I mean, this could, is... Could be a light architecture. For me, the stuff that I do, I don't have to deal with all of this stuff that you guys are talking about. I mean, I've had to recently deal with submodules, and this is one of those reasons why I'm basically in that hate-love type of relationship, where it's slowly 90-10 at this moment in time, and it's like going further down the hill. Um, but when it comes to, for you guys, trying to 
get your dependency packages like because you were saying phil that in the c world currently there's like four kind of contenders for the package management for chris how many are you currently looking at for what you're sort of trying to play with in the dotnet world there is one across dotnet framework and .NET core and that's nuget that's it came in quite a few years back. I, I remember call it when the it came. Nugget, but yeah. When it when it came in, it was it was quite a. I used to call it Nugget as well. <laughs> so you're not the only one. Um, but it, it came in and it was everyone was very skeptical of it because the .NET world hadn't really seen it before. We've been working with the Global Assembly Cache, the GAC, for years. We've been working right. with DLL Hell, and we everybody who worked in that you know in, with dependencies understood it to in, in, enough you know to be able to mitigate most of the problems. So it was a change and it was a uh, a difficult one, to, a difficult pill to swallow. But with the advent of the web, I say the advent, we've been working with it for 20 odd years now, but you know what I mean? With It's new, folks. It's <laughs> <That's>, brand new. <laughs> um, but the, the web has quite a few. I mean, you know, Phil mentioned uh, Python. Um, I mean, that's I, I don't work with Python myself, but I know that has its own. Um, Node has its own NPM. Um, Okay. Ruby's got its own Ruby. Let me, know, let me, let me, let me go ahead towards the, to the, the question I'm looking to focus on. What to you would be, and I love using this in the IT world because it's the latest like management buzz thing, the utopian features. Like, what is it that you find yourself running up against that like, if you, it could have someone sit there and actually design what it needs. Do you feel it has to be or have certain features, period, is really what it comes down to. Yeah, there, features, which are utopian. What do you feel is missing from the things for, that you're currently using tool-wise? For me, it's um, I, the, the, the issue that I come across, and it has been solved, um, is cost management of those tools. Because a lot of the time, selling mm -hmm. it to a client that hasn't used a package management server before, and then they have an additional cost involved with that, Artifact server, for example, Azure's got a, a NuGet artifact server that doesn't cost anything initially, but then as soon as you start pushing stuff to it and it grows in size, you then have an associated cost with that. Um, NPM, again, you can get corporate versions of all of the package management servers. It's the server side, it's the enterprise side of things that starts costing money. And if they don't already use package management, when you hit them with that cost, they're like, well, what's this giving us? Why are we paying x amount per month for what we already were dealing with you know by not having it and then you try and remind them that it's because we need this continuous quick build system that you're asking for you want to be able to build within seconds rather than four days you know yeah <laughs> days what about you phil so i think probably the biggest problem that i see with most package managers is well not so much the package managers but just using package managers is um, the the so-called diamond dependency problem, uh, or or any any case where one of your dependencies, sorry, more than one of your dependencies depends on the same subdependency, um, which may actually end up you know two or three layers down. Mm -hmm. um, so a typical one that comes up all the time in the .NET world, I seem to remember, is the dependency on uh, the Newtonsoft library. Like everyone depends on that. So no matter Pretty what much. you what you depend on, they probably depend on that at some point. And sometimes it doesn't tend to happen with that because that's fairly stable, but uh, sometimes those dependencies will be on specific or rely on specific versions of those dependencies and they will mismatch. Yep. And you think, well, what can I do about that? And I mean, there are some things you can do, but you really need to have the that sort of bird's eye view of all of the dependency tree 
and be able to say, ah, I can see that that's the problem there. That needs to be that version. That needs to be that version. So I need to downgrade that one or upgrade that one or you know, make a judgment call on, on how to fix it manually. But you need to be able to, to see that um, from, uh, from the top down to make that call. Uh, and I, I'm not really deep enough into any of the package manager worlds to know whether any of those tools exist now. Well, I don't think they did last time I looked. NPM um, has solved that, well, say solved. Previously, NPM used to have, uh, well, still does, still has a, fi a file called package.json. And package.json just allows you to add the files and the versions and you can tell it to upgrade to a particular, you know, this is the, the core, you know, the core dependencies that your app relies on, the, the top level dependencies. Um, so you add in, um, I want to upgrade the minor versions whenever a new package comes out or I want to stick to the majors or I want to just upgrade patches, that kind of thing. So you've got all of that kind of fine grained control over the top level packages. What they did with NPM version three, and I think we're on version five now, uh, they introduced a package lock.json, I think it's called. Yeah. It's a much, much, much bigger file, which is automatically generated by NPM. And, and that, displays the entire pen dependency graph with all of the metadata associated with it and allow you can modify it and, and update it and change it. The thing is, a lot of the time, us simple web developers don't care about that level of detail and we don't particularly want to go dig into that level of detail either. Um, but it does, I th I'm, it does solve that problem. It allows you to see everything and it allows you to individually manage them. But that doesn't mean the package isn't going to break you know, the package that you're modifying the version for is going to break. But it also allows you to have multiple different versions of the same package. So um, underscore or I think Lodash is the, um, the the more the more modern one, more up-to-date one. Lodash is a kind of a, a link type library um, that we right. can use in, in JavaScript. And that is every everybody depends on that. Um, funnily enough, I actually remember it went down once. The, uh, the open source and the chaos that ensued across the entire web industry. It was just all build servers just broke overnight. It was, and it, I think it was up. Somebody took over the repository. I think someone had a, a fit and deleted it. Um, someone had a, you know, on some kind of message list somewhere deleted the low dash thing. And it was like, oh, you know, everyone was like, worse than left pad. And you, uh, it, what do you mean? The was left it, pad incident. Oh no, it was a left pad. It was left pad. No, it was left right. pad. It wasn't Lodash. Right. But it was either way, left pad is probably used by Lodash to be fair. But um <laughs> But yeah, I mean left pad is used by almost everything as well, but Lodash is very common too. But anyway, yeah, so I remember that I remember that happening. I was I was actually working on a DevOps migration at the time, very similar to what I'm doing now, migrating from some legacy TFS uh, a legacy TFS system into Azure DevOps or Visual Studio Team Services, it was called at the time. And and yeah, that happened while I was running builds and I didn't know what was going on at the time and then found out someone had had a fit and deleted things. So I'm now going to jump in again. And you brought up the diamond dependency, Phil, which Jamie, might I add, had been waiting for. Mm -hmm. And I just was curious what Jamie thought about it because he mentioned it in our Discord. And I believe I pressed the button, Chris. We'll see if it shows up. Yay. <laughs> Doing things from afar and remote. And he says .NET Core 2X had an explicit dependency on a specific version of Newton Soft JSON, which meant that apps written against it had to use that version. Otherwise, they wouldn't build because there are no assembly redirects in 
So not as stable as I thought. No. Sorry, what was that? I couldn't. So hear not that. as stable as I thought. <laughs> I don't know, but Chris is now staring I'm intently. I'm, I'm reading it because I can't quite figure out. So dependency on specific version of Newtonsoft JSON, which meant that apps written against it had to use that version. Otherwise, they wouldn't build because there are no assembly redirects in core. Oh, because .NET Core 2 had... Right, I see. So it was actually the framework itself had a dependency on, on JSON. It must have been the MVC <laughs> packages um, specifically, I imagine. But Looking for clarification, Jamie. You are the .NET Core man. <laughs> hmm. But yes. Right. Anyway, right. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, that's the thing. It's nothing stable. Oh, yes. And occasionally, says, yes, that's what it is. Occasionally, we do we do have issues in .NET where I have uh, usually in the framework. I haven't seen so many in .NET Core where there is a dependency mismatch, and this is what the diamond thing is. That I mean, I've never heard of that term before. Jamie mentioned it in uh, in Discord I'm today. Curious why it's called diamond. So you have is, something up is here. Is it just the shape on itself? These things here, and they depend on this thing down here. Yeah. And they're all okay, slightly so... different versions of it. Oh, they Put your diamonds in the sky, oh, okay. folks. Yay. If, they're not if they're not different versions, then it, it actually works. But right. there's a potential for the version mismatch to occur. Mm. Right. So I think at the, end, at the end of this, I promised on our little uh, pre-show blurb that there is one definitive correct way to deal with dependencies. And I think we've solved that um, solved that mystery. So thank you very much, everybody. Good night. I, I, you, <laughs> you know, you know, Chris, you bring hope and then you rip it away and you dash it to tears. I think, I think that the main takeaway from this, or what I'm learning anyway, um, and this isn't my BYOM, uh, but I'm Ew. learning, I'm learning that the way that I dependencies and is is the way that I've learned to mitigate as much of the issues that I have seen with dependencies across the years by using package managers now at the very beginning I know we've we've run out of time but I want to ask this question before we we finish with the very beginning of the show um Phil you said that package managers have their issues and was it the depend was it the diamond thing that is the issue the main issue or was there other that that's probably the stickiest one because that's not really something that the package manager itself can typically solve. Uh, you, you need to introduce like extra things in the in the language or the the libraries or or something to to go around that. Uh, that's just inherent in the problem. Um, but other problems are more incidental to a particular package manager. Maybe it has a particular weakness in a particular area. Uh, you know, some are better than others. So um, and I haven't used it extensively, but I hear that the, the, the cargo package manager for Rust is, is pretty good. Whereas uh, some of the others, like uh, I mentioned PIP, they have a lot more weaknesses. So it depends on the package mm. manager itself. So PIP is one of, is that one of the Linux package managers? No, no, it's the, the Python. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, so Sorry. The default Python package manager. There is a Linux one beginning with PIP. Our names, are, honest to goodness, the things that we name things so yeah uh, I mean I think he's again, writing down all this stuff so I am. those of you who hear the <laughs> typing there's typing here because I have a feeling there's going to be links with this I'm going to try I'm going to try and look some of them because I'm I'm more interested in anything I mean I tend to stick to the web world and the .NET world because it's my expertise and it's where my bread and butter is I'm not of you know I'm certainly not averse to any other languages 
Um, it's just I don't that know. you haven't you got enough like time. You really don't like C plus <laughs> plus. There's a bit of a jest in there. It's more I am a higher level programmer. You know, at the end of the day, I don't need for the stuff that I do and that I get paid for. I don't need to worry about memory management and ABIs and I don't. Non, I mean, I'm probably not even using the terms correctly. I'm that. I'm that dumb when it comes to it. I, I am. I quite. I'm quite happy to accept that. But I know how to do what I do. You know, and um, you're not dumb, Chris. You're well, just time limited. That's there. We go. I'm just time limited. That's an easy, way, better way to say it. Anyway, shall we? Shall we close the show? We we could we talk about dependencies forever because there's so many different aspects to them. But uh, there's so many dependencies on the dependencies. Is, is that what? Well, it depends. Did I? It depends. Yes, we got one in, <laughs> and now we're not <laughs> apologizing for it live. Yes, we're at the part of our show where we're doing our BYO, and this is a bring your own man manual. This is where we bring something interesting that we have learned this week, and we. Share it with the world. Chris, you made our poor guest go first. Okay. Well, so, I'm, I'm prepared today. Um, yeah, yeah. So I actually just learned today, in fact, um, and I did post this in, I did post something about this anyway in Discord, but um, PowerShell 7 is now out. I've been working with 5.1 for a while on Windows 10. It's the default one that comes installed. But I decided today to install PowerShell 7 for one reason. Because I was reading some documentation and I was working with, if anybody's used PowerShell in, in anger, you probably will have come across this issue. And it is it is the number one reason to upgrade from 5.1 to at least 6, because I think 6 implemented it. Um, so in 5.1 and below, there is a commandlet called file out. And file out produces a text file and you can pass an encoding parameter to it. And the encoding parameter is something like Unicode, ASCII, etc. You know, normally, I mean, Unicode is the default. Outputting the file always adds uh, by order mark to the file, no matter how you output it, and no matter which uh, encoding you output. It's it's it always adds that additional character, and that character causes issues when reading it in. In other ways, the only the only way that you could do it in version five point one of PowerShell um, without the by order mark was by using .NET you know, calling .NET and outputting it, which wasn't the end of the world. You could create your own command look pretty simply to do that. So in PowerShell 6, they introduced the default of file out file to not have a byte order mark. And this is the biggest news to me as somebody who uses PowerShell a lot. It's wonderful. I mean, it'll break some people's implementations, but at the same time, because it's a major version change, but I've upgraded to 7 and I've started playing with it. It's actually a lot faster as well, but the fact that the default is no byte order mark and there is actually options to output all the different encodings that have a byte order mark, it's all UTF encodings, um, with or without, it's brilliant because you couldn't do that before. And it's excellent, so I'm very happy. So you like it because they dropped the bomb? <laughs> You're the worst. You are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> oh, wow. So Jamie has asked, is PowerShell 7 also PowerShell Core? I think they dropped Core. I think Core was supposed to be 6, and I think PowerShell 7 is just the, the new version. I don't think they're actually releasing Core. I'm so surprised they're using numbers. <laughs> so what about you, Phil? Have you learned anything interesting this week? doesn't even have to be development related. So there's one interesting thing I learned this week, which is somewhat related to dependencies. 
which I'm sure everybody else already knew except me, but it was news to me. And that is that um, Romulans are actually descended from Vulcans, or they had a common ancestor. I did know that. I, I'm not a I'm not a Trekkie, but I did know that. My mum's a Trekkie, so that's something I heard on a Picard podcast. I was listening to. Well, there you, so go. There you go. Depend. I suppose mm. that is yeah. Dependent. No, not dependent. Descendants. Descendants. Yes. <laughs> Joseph. Wow. Uh, in my particular case, um, one of the things that ran across my interesting screen um, is that there are a couple of Google researchers, uh, one of them by the name of Tavis Armandi, who um, was looking around at things in a vast antivirus and discovered that the service um, their Avast SVC service thing, which is actually used to uh, sort of analyze code and stuff that comes in. in it's a JavaScript engine that runs at highest level privileges and it doesn't check anything. Avast has disabled this type of a thing. Now they've kind of shut this off. Um, but um, just simply the fact that it was running unsandboxed and if anyone happened to have found a vulnerability in Avast, because of that, it's everything you find is at this moment almost critical. Because if they get that, you're owned. Woo. But there's even... some really, really, really good stuff that um, Tavis, or Tra Tavis did. I'll, I'll put the link inside of the show notes, but up on GitHub, there is actually the Avast antivirus JavaScript interpreter. He ripped out their interpreter and put it into Linux to do some testing because it was, you know, based on Windows things. And then he bent, built an emulator. So you can actually go in and see what was potentially possible. So it's um, a scary thing. But... You know, it's it's one of those things where I just have to point out, no matter what you build, think about the security implementations. But what fascinated me by just by it is the fact that, you know, when we have, we had a show recently, Phil, about, you know, bug hunting, and Avast does actually have a bounty hunting program, so. Did someone get paid for the finding that one, then? I think someone actually in the Twitter thread threw up the link and said, you know, first come, first serve. Good luck, folks. Hmm. So I don't know. I haven't actually done the research on it. But it's just fascinating to me the things that we find when you have good intentions or you're wanting to do something. Because, I mean, in order to test JavaScript code to know what it's possible, you kind of need to have a sort of self-environment to run it, to check it. Mm -hmm. Like, I kind of see where they're trying to go with it. But not sandboxing it doesn't quite make sense to me i mean i don't know and i don't know how it, you know how they mm -hmm. run heurist, heuristic checks on uh, on code or binaries or anything I, I have no idea how all that works but i imagine yeah sandboxing is a key part of it don't know. yeah i mean it, it is all about how they've chosen to do their heuristics and stuff but yeah we'll have links for you to look at, at least from myself i mean the other guys have really awesome information that will keep you better than the things that I have discovered this week. Well, I know someone that works at a vast, I'll have to send about it. 
I'd be curious. I mean, they they have. I, I take my hat off to them because they said that it was reported and to us, and it could have been abused for as CE. And we've released a tool, or he released a tool that does all the stuff. But they've basically disabled the emulator across everything. That because it's not like it's a quick fix. It's not like yeah. oh gee, you know, I just now to add a checking to make certain no one's putting in like their son's name of you know Bob end parentheses semicolon drop table semi like it's not that simple. <laughs> so good old Bobby tables. Good old Bobby tables. <laughs> Love XKCD. <laughs> but yes, we are now reached oddly enough the end of our show. Um, it, was a very, very dependable show. And thank you, Phil, for being a dependable guest. And Chris is going to slap me. I can feel it coming across the way. So, yes, we are want to thank all of you guys in Twitch. Uh, you know, thank you so much for showing up. Thank you, Copper Beardy. Thank you, Tultepe. Thank you, Jamie. And I know there are lurkers who are actually choosing not to participate because there are lurkers. But thank you so much for being here. And for all of you who are listening to us in the future, thank you as well. Also, if you like what we're doing, please share with your friends, spread the word, give us reviews on the various podcasty places that let you do review thingies. But next, Phil, thank you for being an emergency guest. Very welcome. <laughs> you can always depend on me. Stop it. Stop it. Did you have fun again? Did you... See, I, I enjoy the bad puns. I know, but I get... my wife loves puns. She's constant with them. I, I need to do this to get away from it. <laughs> I now know Chris is kryptonite. Dun, dun, dun. You're in the wrong job. <laughs> but yes, Phil, if you have anything that you wish to pimp out, any projects or things that you're involved in, you know, things that you may advocate for, social media channels, repos, websites. So last time I mentioned my, my podcast uh, and its website, cpp.chat. This time I was going to uh, bring up my conference that I run, but uh, given the, the current climate of things as we as we record this, that's probably not the um, what what most people are, are thinking about. So I'll do that next time, and this time I'll just mention my uh, my blog site, where you can actually get um, as well as my my blog. There's also a page on there that has all my previous uh, talks and, and other appearances, uh, and that's leverlevindirection.com. And if you don't remember that, you can go to extralevelofindirection.com and that will redirect there. <laughs> Even your web domains are ponds. What's wrong with you? I have too many levels of indirection as well. But that goes via an extra stage. Phil, I approve. I, if I had an award, <laughs> I would hand it to you. Oh my gosh. Uh, just, mm. I just don't know what. I don't hey, even. I don't even. Tultepe says, as long as the dependencies are in order. Right, I'm. We, I'm right. Thank you, everybody, for participating in our show. No, has... you have a script to read. <laughs> Considering You're at your part, come on. <laughs> so right, yes, you can. You can. <sighs> Sorry, we've broken him. You've broken me. Reboot. <laughs> Right, so you can visit our website on www.dnistream.live where you can find a link to all of our podcasts. We have launched version 2.0.0, the Jolly Guinea Pig. It is called the Jolly Guinea Pig, if you look on the bottom of the page. 
Um, and as a link to all of our social media, all of our podcast pl discovery platforms, and our brand new show listing, which um, we've been live streaming uh, the yes. development of. Um, so please go and have a look. Try and break it. Try and send us a, send us some contact as well on the on the form because it's been broken for a while. So if anybody's actually <laughs> been trying to get hold of us via the contact form, we had some issues which I only found out um, just before I launched. So please drop us a message um, if you want to be a guest on the show. You've got any topics that you want us to talk about, or you've got any uh, even friends that maybe want to be guests because uh, what what I'm I'm making I'm I'm being rainbow. All right, you just hand movements. I'm joy. <laughs> and of course, you can follow us on our Twitch channel, which is twitch.com forward slash DNI stream. Yes. And for those of you who are really, really awesome, if you can go to our DNI stream.live website and find the error that I have just found and report it before I do, and I will give you a couple days to do so because this is going to go out Friday morning in the podcast world. But there is an error, and it's not so much a typical error so much as a, oops, I forgot to do something kind of a thing. But if you can find that and put it into our repo at github.com slash DNI stream for the DNI website, I will give you props, say your name, and make you, like, happy and stuff on a podcast, like, if you're looking for glory, because we're obviously the place to gain glory. That's how book bounty is there a bounty? We'll give you glory for it. That's your bug bounty. Okay. You get glory. <laughs> <laughs> Lasting glory. Yes. All is left for us to say goodbye. We hope to see you next week. Same bad time. Same Twitch channel. You can totally depend on us. Twitch.tv slash DNI stream. <laughs> say bye, Chris. Bye, everyone. Bye, Phil. Bye, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>